thank you for coming to listen to Monsters Are People. I'm your host, Cece. Things here are still a little crazy. We are still not home, but we should be home early next year, so I'll be able to get into the flow of episode making by then. For those of you who didn't hear my update, if you do not want to hear about my turbulent life, feel free to skip a minute or so. But in January, a car drove into our house. We were in a hotel quarantining with our three-year-old daughter for months. Then we got into a private let in April and that flooded completely in the storm, so we had to go back to hotel life. We got told private lets will not let short term to us, or, you know, maybe they just don't want to rent to us because we're cursed. But we ended up moving in with our in-laws instead of hotel hopping, and in between all of that, just dealing with the headache that comes with insurance claiming, while also trying to keep up with working and being a mum. So, oh, and for those of you that don't know, I'm also pregnant. We're due a little boy in March, so I haven't really been able to keep up with the podcast just because of everything going on. But we're super excited about 2021. It should be a lot better than 2020 for sure. But next year should be amazing. We're going to get back into our home and we'll be expanding our family. And I'm hoping I'll be able to get regular episodes out weekly. Okay, so now we're all caught up. Let's get into this week's case. If you're from the United Kingdom, you'll have probably heard of this case. It was heavily publicised in the media, and this is the case of Millie Dowler. Now, this case does involve a 13-year-old child, so if this content is hard for you to listen to, no hard feelings, just click off now. I haven't really done a super well-known case yet, but after reading Millie's sister's book called My Sister Millie, I realised a lot of what I thought wasn't right, so I figured I would dive into it tonight. Now, all of this information can be found online in articles, but I mainly tried to use Gemma Dowler's book and also Manhunt by Colin Sutton, who played a huge part in catching the person responsible for Millie's murder. So I highly recommend these two books. I listen on Audible because with kids, I just don't have the time to read books or research, but I do have time to listen while I clean at work. I would also like to add, I hope that anyone affected by this case finds peace, but being the victim of a crime like this must just be so hard to come to terms with. With that being said, let's dive into this case of Millie Dowler. Millie Dowler was born as Amanda Jane Dowler, but everyone knew her as Millie. She was a 13-year-old teenager who lived in Walton of Thames, Surrey in England. Millie lived with her mum, Sally, her dad, Bob, and her 16-year-old sister, Gemma. They were a very close and normal family. Sally worked at the school that her girls would attend, and Bob had an office to work in at home and both at work. Millie and Gemma, although they had two rooms, they were very close and they would actually share their bedroom at night. So even though they had the space to have their own room, they opted to sleep in the same room. They would have girl chats at bedtime and it just shows you how close-knit they were. They enjoyed watching police shows and neighbours together and they just enjoyed their family and having family time. They were also close with their grandmother, who Gemma refers to as Lovely Granny throughout her book. They had recently reconnected with their uncle Brian and that extended their family even more. They had learned that lovely granny had to place Brian for adoption when she was younger and the family connected and Millie was really close with her new uncle. The immediate family would enjoy holidays together, they had green fingers in the garden and they loved music. Millie was said to be quite crafty with making things too. Millie had a talent for playing the saxophone and she loved to put on shows for her family. They were very musical as a family, and hearing some of the stories about their childhood reminds me of my own childhood with my sister. It really hits home how normal they were, and this type of crime could happen to anyone. It was just a case of being at the wrong place at the wrong time. The family's world was shaken from its normalness on the 21st of March 2002. 
The day had started off as usual. Millie, Gemma and their mum Sally went to school. The plan had originally been for them all to stay later, after school finishing and going home together. However, the art project Millie had been working on, she had managed to finish it on her lunch break with her friend. So she got permission from her mum to go with a friend and hang out for a bit after school, like most 13-year-old girls would do. It meant getting off the train at an earlier spot than she normally would, but it wasn't a long walk for her to get home. Millie and her friend were seen on the CCTV eating chips at the station they were meant to get off at. She had phoned her dad Bob to let him know that she was almost home and she would be there soon. But something happened that stopped Millie from being able to go home that day. After the CCTV caught her just after 4pm, she was seen one last time by a friend of Gemma's. The friend had said how she had seen Millie near a bus stop heading towards her home. But she looked away and when she looked back, Millie was nowhere to be seen. Bob was in a meeting at his home office at this time, so he was completely unaware that Millie had not yet returned home. It wasn't until Gemma and her mum got home and wondered where Millie was that they realised she hadn't come home from the station yet. Sally had been due to babysit that day, but she ended up taking the children she was babysitting for and Gemma and they drove around the local area to see if they could see Millie or any sign of her. The family were becoming more and more worried and as it got later, they ended up phoning the police around 7pm. They had family helping in the search and it would later come out that their uncle Brian believes he had actually seen the man that we would later find out was responsible for both Millie's abduction and murder, although he did not know it at that point. He described seeing a man in the dark walking his dog. He was a large man and he looked very intimidating and he didn't seem phased by Brian at all, which is a bit strange because it was dark at this point and Brian had had a flashlight and a baseball bat. Most people would look twice if they had seen something like that but this man didn't seem bothered at all. The police had 100 people searching for Millie, as well as a police helicopter in the early hours, but they did not get police dogs straight away, which they would be criticised for. The police seemed to believe that Millie had simply ran away. They would later use her notebooks and notes she left to prove this line of inquiry. The notes were, as Gemma described, typical teen angst writings. Millie would also be known to leave I'm sorry notes around for people to find. In some ways, the family hoped that this was the case, that she had just ran away and she would come back. But people who were close with Millie knew that this would be so out of character for her and it was unlikely to be what happened. Pretty early on in the investigation, the police, as they always do, started to investigate people known to Millie, mainly her family. They seemed to focus on her dad. We all know that in cases such as these, police should look at the family as well, but police should always investigate other lines of inquiry fully as well. But Gemma, in her book, seemed to think that they had focused on her dad, or that she had ran away. The evidence against Bob was pretty non-existent, but Gemma explains how early on she would have to sleep in her parents' bed for comfort. In the early days, any teenage girl would probably need that closeness after losing a sibling and not knowing what happened to her. But Gemma explains in her book how they scared Bob into never sharing a bed with her because he might lose her and get in trouble which is just so sad because Gemma probably needed her parents at that moment. And it's also sad because if you're a parent that would never hurt your child like that, being accused of it is pretty heart-wrenching. The family worried about how even their uncle Brian could probably be investigated, seeing as he was a relatively new person within the family. The family all knew that none of them were responsible and that meant really they only had the options that Millie had run away, been abducted by a stranger or someone known who they had never thought of had done this. The runaway theory was so unlike Millie, according to everyone who knew her, it was so unlikely. She was a happy girl, 
Plus, Millie had phoned home and she had said she would be home soon. She had been seen on CCTV at the station, been seen by Gemma's friend heading towards her home. But she was not captured on the CCTV at the end of Station Avenue. So for me, that would mean she would have had to be on a bus where CCTV would have probably caught her, or in a car or in a property in that vicinity. I'm not a detective though, but for me, if I had all that information, I would have been focusing on that area or looking at CCTV to find cars going around the area at the time of her disappearance and her last known sighting. The police had been fairly slow in getting posters out, so the family took it upon themselves to put up posters in the area with their phone numbers for people to call until police set theirs up. Posters are a really good idea if someone's missing. It lets everyone in the area know that they need to be looking for this person. They got plenty of phone calls from well-wishers or people who thought they may have known something. Sadly, they would also be the victim to many hoaxers and people who were mentally ill. Sally even had a woman try to give her her own child, which to me is just so sad. As many parents know, no child can replace your own little baby. The Dowlers were under constant scrutiny, but the family also had plenty of support and encouragement. Among their supporters were Sarah Payne. Sarah had reached out to the family in the summer of 2002 to tell them to remain strong. This was a sad twist because Millie had actually wrote about Sarah Payne in a school assignment. Sarah was Sarah's daughter. She was a little girl who had been abducted and killed in July 2000 and her story had touched Millie. The Sun newspaper also supported the Dowlers and they had offered a £100,000 reward for any information to find Millie and Millie's story was also featured on Crime Watch in the hopes that they could trace her or find any information into what happened to her. What followed Millie's disappearance was months of anguish of not knowing what had happened to their much-loved daughter, sister, grandchild and niece. Millie's family had to push for information and seemed to only receive the information it was that they wanted if it was about to leak to the media somehow. It wasn't until the 18th of September 2002, six months later, that they would find out what happened to Millie. Her body was discovered by a couple of mushroom pickers in the area. She was naked and discovered in Minley Woods. Due to decomposition, she had to be identified via dental records. Her school uniform she had been wearing when she disappeared was not with her and neither was her grey Nokia 3210, which had her name on the back and her purse with red ace hearts motive on it. Her school bag was also not found. Now, due to the discovery of her body, you would think they would drop her dad as a suspect. After all, he was in a business meeting at that night in his house. How could he have possibly done anything? It was obvious he couldn't have, but common sense wouldn't stop the family's scrutiny when it came to the future trial. But I digress. The funeral would come first. Sadly, Millie would be laid to rest on the year anniversary of her disappearance. The family walked Millie's last walk home and they had a service where Millie's saxophone teacher played a piece that he wrote for Millie. Following her death, Millie's fund was set up and in October 2003, they had a show in London to celebrate her life and even Will Young headlined. The family also managed to get a flower named after Millie, a magnetic sweet pea. And as you know, the family had green fingers, so the fact that Millie got a flower named after her was just a really sweet touch. Even though Millie had now been found, the family still did not have the answers as to what took their loving, normal family away. The family had to struggle with being identified in the street, being photographed by the media at their most private moments, and knowing that her killer was still out there. They had to try and rebuild their family and their lives, and now they had to deal with mental health issues which were not present prior to losing Millie. Gemma and Sally would go on to use different forms of therapy to try and help them. 
They would snorkel as well, which gave them moments of peace while under the water, identifying different sea life and trying to relax. Eventually, they would find a form of therapy, which they would swear by. Sally would even go on to speak in seminars about how much it helped her through such a difficult time. This therapy is called EDMR and it seems to be a type of therapy where you relive the trauma over and over and eventually it seemed to help them by identifying their triggers. This would be essential for them following the discovery of her body because they now had to also deal with people claiming to be responsible when they weren't. One paedophile even managed to send the Dowlers a letter from his prison cell to make a false confession, which was very disturbing and traumatic for the family. It wasn't until two years after Millie's murder that they got a break in the case. The Metro Police reached out to Surrey Police to make them aware of a man called Levi Belfield. Levi Belfield's life of crime started not long after the death of his father when he was aged 10 years old. His crime spree began in 1981 with burglary and it quickly escalated to assaults and thefts. He worked odd jobs here and there, mainly as bouncers, which does not help the bouncer stereotype at all, and he was described by many as having a nasty streak. He's also said to have fathered 11 children with five different women. Belfield was a large man, and he had also had a dog at the time of Millie's disappearance, which just goes into Brian's sighting and gives it a bit more credibility. The Metro Police said how they had just charged Levi Belfield with killing young females, Marsha MacDonald, age 19, and Amelia Delagrange, aged 22, who had both been bludgeoned to death. He had also been charged with the attempted murder of Kate Sheedy. He had tried to run Kate over with his vehicle, and she was in pretty bad shape, but she managed to phone for help, and miraculously, she survived. The police decided to share this information because they found out that Belfield was actually living at 24 Coolingwood Place, which is in close proximity to Millie's last known sighting before her abduction. So at last, two years later, they had a suspect. However, the police had to wait until after his sentencing for these crimes to press their charges. Belfield was sentenced to life in 2008 for the deaths of Marsha and Amelie, and it wasn't until March 2010 that Levi Belfield would finally be charged with Millie's abduction and murder. During this investigation, we find many mistakes made by the police, which could have potentially saved the lives of his future victims, and potentially have found Millie before Belfield could have killed her. Of course, we don't know for sure that had they done this, the outcome would be different. But the question of if is enough for me to be quite upset by it. So I can't imagine how the family must feel. For example, the fact that they didn't use police dogs straight away to try and find Millie. Had they done this, the dogs may have led them to the flat at Collingwood Place. And then they could have linked it to Levi and potentially have found Millie. The police also did not follow up on the residence near to Millie's last sighting. Had they followed up on the letting agency to find out who had lived at the flat at the time, as no one had been answering when the police would knock, and by the time someone did answer, it was someone that didn't stay there at the time of the disappearance. Had they followed up and found out Levi Belfield had moved hastily just four days after her disappearance, that would have gave them a lead a lot sooner. The police also failed to link a prior attempted kidnapping to Millie and did not investigate a case prior well enough, in my opinion. Prior to Millie's abduction, an 11-year-old girl, Rachel Cowles, was almost lured into a car. The man matched Levi Belfield's description and he drove a red debut Nexia, which is his car. The man said he was a neighbour and tried to get Rachel to go into his car to give her a lift home. Rachel, however, knew her neighbours and declined and reported the incident to both her parents and the police. The police didn't link the two together and if I'm honest, given the description of both the man and his car, it should have been a simple enough investigation to find out who this man was. 
And had they done this, maybe Levi Belfield would have been a suspect on the first day, the first hour, rather than years later. Now the trial began and it was pretty shocking. You would think that Belfield would be the one on trial, but it was more like Millie's family were the ones to be persecuted by the defence. As if Belfield hadn't done enough to hurt their family, he continued to torment them and embarrass them on the stand. Bob was pretty much made out to be a suspect on the stand, even though the timeline he couldn't have possibly been involved. They brought up how he had some pornographic magazines. Sorry, but most people have watched or read something pornographic. I mean, nowadays, look at the best-selling book, Fifty Shades of Grey. Even girls do it on planes. It really isn't relevant, but it was brought up anyway. Sally was made out to be a neglectful mother for not noticing the impact of these magazines had on Millie, or how unhappy they said that Millie was. They read Millie's notepad in the courtroom, insinuating she was so unhappy that she wanted to escape. But if she was unhappy or not, even though I don't think she was unhappy, I think she was just a typical teenager, she did not take herself out to Minley Woods and kill herself. So it's irrelevant. Throughout her testimony, Sally was made out to be a mother who loved Gemma more than Millie, which just wasn't true. The parents were treated like absolute rubbish, and in the process of giving Belfield a fair trial, they ripped apart a victim's family even more. After Sally took the stand and was reduced to tears, it was decided that Gemma, Millie's sister, could not take the stand. Gemma had been working through her mental health issues and they didn't believe it was in her best interest to take the stand. It's just so insulting to me that during the trial to get justice for Millie, Millie's privacy was completely invaded and her family were treated like utter rubbish. And Belfield was allowed to just refuse to take stand. He didn't have to speak in his defence because that's his right, but the family didn't have that right. Belfield's ex-girlfriends took the stand to explain how Belfield seemed to have a hatred for women. He would start their relationship like most typical abusers, charming at first and then become controlling and dominating. Emma Mills, who he had lived with at Collingwood Place at the time of Millie's murder, took the stand and said how Belfield had accused her of accusing him of killing Millie when she questioned him about his whereabouts that day. She hadn't even connected that it was the same day that Millie disappeared until he had brought it up. She also confirmed that he had been alone that day and she didn't know his whereabouts. He had not gotten home that night until 10 to 11 p.m. She said he had been wearing different clothes to what he was wearing before and she also commented on how he had changed the bed sheets, claiming that the dog had soiled them. Emma also confirmed that at the time he was driving the red Daewoo Nexia but he claims that the car was stolen just eight days later after Millie's disappearance and was never found. This is the same car that was seen on CCTV near where Millie disappeared. During the trial, the Dowler family were under strict instructions to try and not show emotion throughout, whereas Belfield, the one that was accused of the crime, was allowed to refuse to take the stand, would cough loudly, which was an obvious attempt to intimidate a victim during her testimony, and he even yawned in the courtroom after hearing his verdict. Belfield had actually tried to stop going to the court to hear his verdict, but they were called back and Belfield was actually made to hear that he had been found guilty yet again. Although he did avoid attending court for his sentencing, I'm glad he was made to hear that the jury again saw through his lies and his acts. Now you would think that this would be the end of the torment Millie's family had to endure, but it wasn't. You would think the guilty verdict would be the end of the book, but unfortunately it wasn't. They were now at the centre of a huge media scandal. Many who live in the UK will remember this scandal. It was the news of the world's phone hacking. Plenty of celebrities were affected by this, but people were outraged that they had also done this to a victim's family. Normal people whose privacy were completely invaded 
Not only that, but the victim themselves had their privacy invaded by people not helping with an investigation but trying to sell stories. The investigation into this scandal was called the Levison Inquiry. It investigated the news of the world and it caused the newspaper to actually cease printing. It was alleged that the newspaper workers had erased text messages on Millie's phone, which gave Sally false hope and she thought Millie was actually alive, but she wasn't. At this point, she was deceased. She thought that she had listened to her messages to have space for more messages to be left. They believe this hacking is how the press seemed to know all about the private meetings. Like one night, Sally and Bob had taken a private walk, Millie's walk, and the next day, the press had taken photos of this private moment. Following this inquiry, the Dowlers did get an apology from Rupert Murdoch, the newspaper owner. Some of the journalists were also arrested and the family did receive compensation for the ordeal. Gemma explained how the family didn't spend it for quite a while, but they remembered how they used to all sing the If I Had a Million Dollars song, and now they did have a million dollars. Which is just so sad, because most families do daydream about what they would do if they won money, but it's sad that Millie couldn't be there for it, and I know any parent would gladly hand over that money, if it meant that they could get their child back safe. Since Belfield's sentencing, he's been in the limelight over the years again. He is being held with other monsters like Ian Huntley, Holly and Jessica's killer, known as the Soham Killer, at a Category A prison in Durham. The police do believe Belfield has attacked other women in the past, and Belfield is said to have changed his name to Yusuf Rahim after converting to Islam. Belfield was back in the papers after receiving compensation at the sum of 4,500 after he was attacked in prison. He claims he wasn't protected enough. Boo-hoo. How insulting to her family. I sincerely hope he didn't get to enjoy any of that money because he has caused so much pain to other people. He doesn't deserve a payout for having his human rights violated when he violated so many females. Then in 2016, the Dallars received the news that they never expected to hear and only got notified as there was an inmate due to be released that could leak the information to the press. So they were told so that they wouldn't find out through the media. Levi Belfield had made a confession for the first time over Millie. He admitted to brutally raping and then strangling the 13-year-old to death. Gemma did outline the details of this in her book, and she does say certain information they have kept private, but even what was shared was enough to make you realise what that sweet little girl had to endure, and it shows the type of evil that Belfield truly is. Belfield admits to kidnapping Millie into his flat, where he sexually assaulted her using his fingers. He then put her in the red car and drove to his mother's property. She had not been in her uniform at this point. He described how her gag fell out during the transportation and Millie had told him that it had. CCTV was seen of the car during this journey and it's so sad to think that Millie is inside that car, scared and wanting to go home. He said how once he got to his mother's driveway, he had raped the girl on his car in broad daylight outside. She had gotten a cut on her and bled a little on the car, which would explain the car going missing. Her DNA would have been both inside and on it. He proceeded to tie her up and left her in his mother's home so that he could go back to his flat to get her uniform because he wanted to rape her in that as well. He said when he got back that he raped her again and didn't kill her until the next day and he did this by strangling her. When you look at his pictures and see how large he was, there was no way a little 13-year-old girl, no matter how strong she was, could not have gotten away from him. Belfield did try to retract his confession, claiming he never said that, but he was probably, in my opinion, pissing his pants over other inmates finding out. Gemma seems to believe, and I have to say I do agree, that he is probably rewarded for giving information, because why else would he share information so freely now? 
I mean, it can't be his conscience because frankly, he doesn't have a Jiminy Cricket on his shoulder at all. There is also belief that another man could have been involved in the abduction and rape of Millie, but this man was released without charge, so it's just speculation for now. Basically, it's probably something that Belfield has suggested, but there's been no evidence to back it up. But I really do hope that if anyone else was involved, that one day they get held accountable. If you are interested in learning more about Millie's story, I highly recommend Gemma's book or Manhunt by Colin Sutton. Manhunt has also been made into a documentary series since, and as a result of Manhunt, more potential victims have come forward of Belfield, so I wonder if one day he'll even get more time added to his life sentences. You have been listening to Millie's story on Monsters or People. I hope you found this informative and thank you for listening. If you like listening to my podcast, please subscribe and feel free to leave a review and offer suggestions on cases you would like to see covered. Thank you. Bye.